Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you part one of P.D. James's The Private Patient, where Commander Adam Dalgleish and his team investigates a murder at a private nursing home for rich patients being treated by a famous plastic surgeon. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. This is Radio 4, where now it's time for the omnibus edition of our daily drama serial, the latest Commander Dalgleish mystery by P.D. James. The Private Patient is set largely in and around an exclusive plastic surgery clinic in Dorset, not far from an ancient stone circle, which has a grisly history of its own. November the 21st, the day of her 47th birthday, and three weeks and two days before she was murdered, Rhoda Gradwin went to Harley Street to keep a first appointment with her plastic surgeon, George Chandler Pole. About this trauma on your cheek, Miss Gradwin, when did it happen? 34 years ago. You've borne this scar on your face since you were 13. What caused it? Is that something you need to know? Not unless it was self-inflicted. I assume it wasn't. It was not. A drunken bully of a father, a frightened and ineffective mother, and one night of exceptional violence had been permanently imprinted on the girl's face. No visit to the doctor followed her father's attack on her with a broken bottle. No truthful explanation ever given to anyone. Finding out what others kept hidden, probing into other people's secrets, became a lifelong obsession. As an investigative journalist, she became increasingly successful. And you've waited 34 years to do something about this. Why now, Miss Gradwin? Because I no longer have need of it. I don't quite... Tell me, what are you expecting from this operation? I'd like the scar to disappear, but I presume that's impossible. I suppose what I'm hoping for is a thin line, not this. Well, no promises, mind, but we might do even better than that. Now, I have private beds at St Angela's, or if you'd prefer to be out of London, you could come to Chevrolet Manor, my clinic in Dorset. I prefer to be out of London. Chevrolet was where Chandler Pole felt most at home. It was where he could indulge his two passions, his work and his house. Make it brief, Marcus. It's been a long day. It's about Africa. I wanted you to know I've come to a decision. I will be joining Mr Greenfield's team. I'd be grateful if you could release me in three months' time. Mm, take it you've told your sister. We've discussed it. Poor Candace. She'll have lost both her father and her brother in the space of a year. Has your father's death anything to do with this? Well, it's freed us to make our own decisions about our lives and she's all in favour. Oh, and there's one other thing we agree on. What's that? It's about a patient. Hmm? Rhoda Gradwin. I gather we'll be operating on her here at the manor shortly. What about her? 
We were wondering whether you really want to encourage investigative journalists here. Can't you just see the sort of thing they'll write? Rich women squander valuable operating time, waste of leading surgeons' talent. We don't need that sort of publicity. But Rhoda Gradwin needs what we can provide. If Candice doesn't like her, she need have nothing to do with her. The patients aren't her concern. Chandler Pole hadn't intended to spend this Wednesday embroiled in arguments with either Marcus Westall or his sister, but now that a decision had been made, he thought it would be as well to see what Candace had in mind. He left the manor and, in the fitful winter sunshine, walked up the lane to Stone Cottage. Approaching, he saw a dirty sports car parked next door outside Rose Cottage. So the Westall's cousin, Robin Boyton, was visiting. Boyton tended to book the cottage at short notice. He couldn't help thinking how different Stone Cottage looked since Candace and her father had arrived some two and a half years before. It's about Marcus, isn't it? He says you agree with this African decision. It's time he left, George. I can see it's inconvenient for you and we're both sorry about that, but you'll find someone else. And now that probate's been granted for father's will, neither of us has to worry about money for the rest of our lives. Will you stay on here for a time? I know Helena will be glad of help. She can't run the manor single-handed. I'd be happy to stay on for a while. George, there's one other thing. You've got Rhoda Gradwin coming here soon for an operation. She's a dangerous woman. Dangerous? In what way? To whom? You must know something of her reputation. She's an investigative journalist, one of the worst kind. She sniffs out gossip like a pig with truffles. She makes it her job to discover things about other people which give them distress or pain or worse. She sells secrets for money. George, tell her there's been a double booking. Robin Boyton was waiting, as always, at his favourite table by the door, which, as always, Rhoda had booked for them. Darling. Hello. Lovely to see you, Rhoda. How did you get on with the great George? Oh, he seemed competent. I'll be having the operation at Cheverel Manor. In that case, I think I'll visit you while you're in residence. You'll welcome a gossip. No, Robin, I won't welcome a gossip. I chose the manor specifically to ensure that I'll be left alone. Well, I do think that's rather grudging of you, considering I recommended the manor to you in the first place. You stay there from time to time, don't you? Aren't you some kind of relation? Oh, not of Chandler Pole. His surgical assistant, Marcus Westall, is my cousin. There are two cottages in the grounds. Marcus lives in one of them with his sister, Candice. She helps to run the manor. Oh. I'm their only living relative. You'd have thought that would mean something to them. And it doesn't? Let me give you a little family history. Rhoda was happy to settle back and listen. Anything she could learn about Chevrolet Manor would be useful. To arrive anywhere unbriefed was to put oneself at a disadvantage. Robin explained that his uncle Peregrine, who died nine months previously, had left his cousins Marcus and Candace about eight million pounds between them. Peregrine Westall had inherited the family fortune from his own father, who died only a few weeks before him. Two deaths so close together. The death duties must have been horrendous. Mm, but old grandfather Theodore had thought of that. He mm. set up some form of insurance years before. Anyway, the money's all there, and passed down to my Uncle Peregrine, and now my cousins will pocket the lot. And you'd like a part of it? Well, I deserve a part of it. Grandfather Theodore Westall had two children, Peregrine and Sophie. Sophie was my mother. Trouble was, my grandfather never approved of Sophie's marriage. He cut the Boytons off from the family. Robin, 
I've just thought of something. How long was it that Peregrine survived his father? Um, 35 days. Really? Well, your cousins must have had a pretty anxious time for a while. There's a clause in all wills saying you've got to survive 28 days after the death of the testator if you're to inherit. I didn't know that. Oh, yes. So I imagine they took good care to keep their father alive during the month after Theodore's death. Not to say nothing of those extra days. But just think, Robin. Was he really alive? <laughs> Perhaps he died at some point and they popped him into a freezer and then produced him nice and fresh when required. There's a classic crime novel with that as the plot. Candice was nursing her father at home. It could have happened. Rhoda Gradwin went to the window in her bedroom at Cheverell Manor. Below stretched a lime avenue, which led to a low stone wall, and beyond it a small circle of stones, crude misshapen lumps around a central taller stone. They must, she thought, be prehistoric. As she gazed, her ears caught the soft closing of her sitting-room door. Tea had arrived. She turned and saw, with a small shock of surprise, that a young woman had entered. I brought you tea, madam. She was a slight figure, wearing a blue checked dress with a shapeless fawn cardigan over it. Who are you? My name's Sharon. Sharon Bateman. I help in the kitchen. I left the tray in the sitting room. Do you want it in here? Well, leave it to brew for a couple of minutes. I've been looking at the stone circle out there. Oh, the Chevrolet stones, madam. They're quite famous. Miss Cresset, she runs the manor. She says they're over 3,000 years old. Hmm. But no one from the village goes to the stones after dark. They're haunted. They're scared of seeing the ghost of Mary Kite walking and watching. Who's Mary Kite? She was tied to the middle stone and burnt there in 16-something or other. She was condemned as a witch. You can still see the brown patch where the fire was. What? They say that on the date of her death, her screams can be heard as far as the church. <sighs> she cursed the village as she was burnt. And afterwards, nearly all the children died. Oh, you surely don't believe all that nonsense. So you don't think the spirits of the dead can come back to visit us? The dead don't return to visit us, either as spirits, whatever that means, or in any other form. Oh, but the dead are here. Mary Cart isn't at rest. How could she be? She was only 20 when they burnt her. And the portraits in this ass, all those dead faces. I know they don't want me here. <laughs> That's ridiculous. They're dead. They're beyond thought. And Mary Kite is dead. She can't come back. Rhoda Gradwin slowly drifted back to consciousness. She became aware that she was lying on a bed in an unfamiliar room and that other people were with her, moving like pale shadows on silent feet. And then she remembered. She looked up and tried to form words from her impeded mouth. How did it go? Are you pleased? It went very well. I hope that shortly you'll be pleased too. Now, you must rest here a while, and then Sister will wheel you up to your room. Closing her eyes and drifting into sleep, she thought of the peaceful night ahead, and of the morning, which she would never live to see.
With the operation on Rhoda Gradwin satisfactorily completed, George Chandler Pole was alone in his private sitting room. It was a solitude he often sought at the end of an operating day. He had enjoyed a light supper and was putting the first CD into the player when there was a knock on the door. He felt an irritation close to anger. Very few people disturbed him in his private sitting room. Before he could answer, the door opened and Flavia Holland, his theatre sister, came in. Still in uniform, she shut the door sharply behind her and leaned against it. Miss Gradwin, is she all right? Of course she's all right. If she weren't, would I be here? I've left Nurse Fraser in charge until I return. Anyway, I'm not here to discuss Rhoda Gradwin. If it's not urgent, Flavia, can't it wait until tomorrow? No, George, it can't. Not until tomorrow, nor the day after, nor the day after that. Not until any day when you condescend to find time to listen. We'll talk outside. I suspect the discussion will be disagreeable. And I'd prefer a disagreeable conversation to take place outside this room. You'd um, better get a coat. I'll see you at the door. We can't go on as we are. We have to make a decision. George... I'm asking you to marry me. I'm afraid that isn't possible. Of course it's possible. You're divorced. I'm single. I meant our relationship has never been on that footing. Well, what footing exactly did you think it was on? When we became lovers, and that was eight years ago, let me remind you. What footing was it on then? <sighs> Sexual attraction, respect, affection. I never said I loved you, Flavia. I never mentioned marriage. I wasn't looking for marriage. One failure is enough. Always honest, always careful. You couldn't even give me fidelity, could you? Do you think I didn't know how many avaricious little gold diggers have tried to get their claws into you? But did you ever consider what I was feeling? For me, it's been eight years of commitment. Flavia, I'm sorry. I had no idea you felt like this. I'm not asking for pity. I'm not even asking for love. You haven't got it to give. I'm asking for justice. I want marriage, the status of being a wife, the hope of children. I'm 36. I don't want to work until I retire. It isn't too late. You're very attractive, and you're still young. It's sensible to recognize when a stage of life has ended, when it's time to move on. So you mean to throw me over? To move on. And you won't marry me? I will not. Flavia, accept it. This is the end. Don't think the people here don't know we're lovers. Marcus and Candace, Helena, even the Bostocks in the kitchen. They're all probably wondering when you're going to chuck me. Well, I'm damned if I'll stay here to endure their pity. You leave in a few days for the Christmas break. When you return, I won't be here. As you wish. But, George, promise me one thing. I've never asked for anything, have I? But I do ask this one thing. Come to me tonight. Come to my room. It's the first and last time I ask, I promise. Come late, about 11. It can't end like this. Of course I'll come. Rhoda stirred into drowsy wakefulness. She lay for a few seconds, motionless in that brief confusion which attends the sudden awakening from sleep. Gazing at the window, she could see that the room was darker than the night outside. 
The wind was gusting strongly. She could hear its hiss in the chimney. Then, in a lull in the wind, she heard a sound so faint that only the stillness of the room could have made it audible. She sensed, rather than felt, a presence moving around the sitting room. Early morning tea? And now someone was closing the bedroom door. No one spoke. No light was turned on. Curiosity gave way to the first cold clutch of unease. Who are you? What are you doing? Who is it? There was no reply. And now she knew with certainty that this was no friendly visitor, that she was in the presence of someone or something whose purpose was malignant. As she lay rigid, the pale figure, white-clad and masked, was at her bedside. Arms moved above her head in a ritual gesture, like an obscene parody of a benediction. She struggled to get out of bed, but found herself unable to move. The white-clothed figure looked down on her. She heard words, quietly spoken, but she could make no sense of them. She knew that this was death, and with the knowledge came an unsought peace, a letting go. And then the strong hand, skinless and inhuman, closed around her throat, forcing her head back against the pillows, and the apparition flung its weight forward. <gasps> She wouldn't shut her eyes in the face of death, nor did she struggle. The darkness of the room closed in on her and became the final darkness in which all feeling ceased. To meet a future father-in-law for the first time is a situation not free from misgivings. At half-past ten on the Saturday of Rhoda Gradwin's death, Commander Adam Dalgleish, accompanied by his fiancée Emma Lavenham, was knocking on the door of 27 Calverton Mansions, one of Marylebone's blocks of spacious Edwardian flats. Professor Lavenham, warned that we'd come especially to inform him that we intended to marry, greeted us with kindness, if not exactly enthusiasm, and I was subjected to a somewhat old-fashioned interrogation about my circumstances and prospects. I had just about convinced him that I was able to provide for Emma in the manner to which he was accustomed when, somewhat to Professor Lavenham's irritation, we were interrupted by my mobile. It was Geoffrey Harkness, the Assistant Commissioner of the Met. A case for the squad, Adam. The address is Cheverell Manor in Dorset, some ten miles west of Poole. It's a clinic-cum-nursing home run by a cosmetic surgeon, George Chandler Pole. One of his patients is dead, a Rhoda Gradwin, strangled, apparently. Why the squad, Geoffrey? Can't the local force take it on? Well, number 10 has asked for you. They say this is a matter of particular sensitivity, just the sort of case the squad was set up for. The chief constable down there is reasonably happy about it. He'll provide the Sockos and the photographer. Chief Inspector Keith Whetstone from the local force will meet you at the scene. Uh, do you want me to do anything more this end? No, I'll contact Inspector Miskin and Sergeant Benton Smith. I'll be in touch. For Detective Inspector Kate Miskin, her flat on the north bank of the Thames was a celebration of achievement. Paying the mortgage in the first few years had meant sacrifices, 
but she'd never lost that first excitement of walking through rooms full of light, of waking and falling asleep to the never-ending pulsation of the Thames. It couldn't be more different from those claustrophobic rooms on the seventh floor of Ellison Fairweather buildings where I'd been brought up by my grandma. From the smell, the vandalised lifts, the overturned rubbish bins. What a childhood. But now I had my flat, a job I loved and was good at. And until six months ago, there'd been Piers Tarrant. We'd been so close to love, but I'd ended it. It was quite simple. I just couldn't tolerate having a partner who was unfaithful. For him, it'd been nothing, a passing incident. Look, Kate, it's unimportant. It didn't mean anything. She doesn't mean a thing to me. I know, that's what I object to. If that's how you want to live, that's your affair. I'm simply telling you that I don't want to have sex with a man who's sleeping with other women. And so he disappeared from my life. Which is not to say that I didn't miss him. The call came at 10.50 on her dedicated mobile and Kate knew whose voice she would hear. She listened closely. The victim, a journalist, apparently strangled. The place, a clinic in Dorset. He gave the address. No explanation of why the squad were taking over, but apparently number 10 were involved. They were to travel by car, either hers or Benton's, and the team would aim to arrive together. Yes, sir. I'll ring Benton now. I think we'll take his car. Mine's due for a service. Right. I need to call in at the yard, Kate. I'll meet you at Benton's place in Shepherd's Bush. I hope to be there by the time you arrive. At the front door of Chevrolet Manor, as we were pulling our murder bags, laptops and briefcases out of the cars, the door of the great porch opened and a man emerged. Closing the door behind him, he walked towards us. Commander Dalgleish? Uh-huh. Chief Inspector Keith Whetstone. You've made good time, sir. How do you do? Inspector Kate Miskin. Hello, sir. Hello. Sergeant Francis Benton-Smith. you? Everything organised? The chief's arranged for a couple of socos to be here shortly, and the photographer's on his way. Incidentally, the yard said you could do with a DC, so I'm leaving you Malcolm Warren. Bit on the quiet side, but bright enough, and he knows when to keep his mouth shut. Quiet, reliable and discreet. I've no quarrel with that. Where is he now? He's outside the bedroom, guarding the body. Most of the household are waiting for you in the Great Hall. There's George Chandler Pole, who owns the place. His assistant, Marcus Westall, he's a surgeon. Then there's his sister, Candice Westall. She helps in the office. Flavia Holland, she's the chief nurse. Helena Cresset, who's a kind of general administrator. And Letitia Frensham, who does the accounts. An impressive feat of memory, Chief Inspector. Well, not really, sir. Most people hereabouts know who's at the manor. Has the pathologist arrived? About an hour ago, sir. She's also in the hall. Well, you'd better all come this way. As we approached the porch, the door opened, as if someone had been watching to time exactly our moment of arrival. There could be no doubt about the identity of the man who moved to one side as we entered. George Chandler-Pole. The rest of us are in the Great Hall. As you come in. We followed him through the porch and to a door to the left of the square entrance hall. Chandler-Pole opened it. The five people who were waiting on each side of the fire their faces turned towards him and looked like a tableau. Introductions were quickly made. Marcus Westall, Candace Westall, Flavia Holland, Helena Cresset, Letitia Frensham. And I understand you already know Dr. Glenister. Commander Dalgleish and I are old colleagues. <laughs> well, shall we get started? The victims waited long enough. 
Mr. Chandler-Pole, would you please lead the way? I peeled the adhesive tape away from the door and we entered the sitting room. Once inside, we saw that the door to the bedroom was closed. Chandler Pole pushed it gently open. Things are exactly as I found them. No one has entered this room since Sister and I left. We approached the body. Rhoda Gradwin was lying on her back, her two arms raised awkwardly above her head as if in a gesture of theatrical surprise. The left side of her face was covered by a taped surgical dressing. The cause of death was evident. She was strangled by a right-handed grip. The hand was probably in a smooth glove. See, there's bruising, but no nail scratches. I'll know more when I have her on the table. Uh, one thing, Mr Chandler-Pole, I think the lab will find it useful to have a list of all the drugs you keep in the dispensary here. I'll get that for you. Thank you. I'd like a few minutes with you alone shortly, Mr. Chandler-Pole. I need to get an idea of the layout here and details of the staff. I'll be in the general office. That's inside the porch. I'll look out a plan of the manor for you. Thank you. Can you estimate time of death yet, Dr. Glenister? Based on the hypostasis and the present development of rigor mortis, I'd say she died between 11 and 12.30 last night. Probably earlier rather than later. Thank you. Benton, the photographer and the soccer's will be here shortly. You stay and cope with them. Kate, come with me. Sir? You heard Dr Glenniston. The murderer was probably wearing some sort of glove. A smooth glove, sir. Yes. I presume you have a stock of surgical gloves, Mr Chandler-Pole? Well, we have two types on the premises. The ones used for operations are stored in the operating suite, and that's kept locked. Mm. Disposable latex gloves are used by the nursing and household staff. They're kept in the housemaid's cupboard on the ground floor close to the kitchen. We don't monitor their use. So all the staff at the manor would know there were latex gloves in the housemaid's cupboard. But no outsider would know, unless told. So chances are, an insider must be involved in this murder, one way or another. I have Rhoda Gradwin's file here. She gave her mother her next of kin. I've already provided Chief Inspector Weston with the name and address. Now, one other patient spent the night here, Mrs Laura Skeffington. She was in the room next to Miss Gradwin, and she claimed she saw lights in the grounds during the night. She's frightened and shocked. She wants to get away as soon as possible. Then we'd better talk to her at once. I'll lead the way. Mrs. Skeffington, this At is... last. Commander Dalgleish, isn't it? I'm so glad you've come. Stuart said that you would. He told me not to worry. He'd get the best. So that was why we were here. The Skeffingtons obviously had connections, and at the highest level. That's why the request came from number 10. This is Detective Inspector Miskin. Hello. Now, Mrs. Skeffington, would you be kind enough to tell us exactly what has happened to you since you got here? But there's nothing to tell. I arrived yesterday afternoon. Mrs. Skeffington's operation was scheduled for this morning. Mr. Marcus Westall, Sister Holland and Miss Cresset met me in the hall and I had a cup of tea with them. I knew I'd have to be up fairly early, so I went to my room and watched television until about ten o'clock. Then I went to bed. And what happened in the night? Well, 
I slept for a while and then I woke, needing to go to the bathroom. What time was that? Twenty to twelve. I looked at my watch. It was then I heard the lift. Just the gentle clang of the door and a sort of purring as it went down. Before going back to bed, I went over to open the window a little wider. It was then I saw this light among the chevreau stones. What kind of light? A small light moving among the stones. It flickered and then it disappeared. I felt, well, frightened. I don't believe in ghosts, of course, but I, I remembered the witch who was burnt there and how the stones are said to be haunted. It was eerie. Horrible, really. Suddenly I wanted company, someone to talk to. I thought of the patient next door, but when I opened the door into the corridor, I realised I wasn't being, well, considerate, I suppose. After all, it was nearly midnight. She was probably asleep. So I went back inside and rang for tea. Kimberly Bostock brought it up. Did you tell her about the light? Yes, I did. We spoke for a bit, but she didn't stay long. You didn't think of waking Sister Holland? She'd probably have thought I was being foolish. And anyway, it wasn't as if I needed anything. And now, Commander Dalgleish, I want to go home. I've told you everything I know. Please, may I go now? By the time we'd returned to the scene of the crime, Rhoda Gradwin's body had been removed. I found her mobile phone. Switching it on, I checked for calls and messages. Old text messages had been deleted, but there was a new one listed as from Robin. It read, Something very important has cropped up. I need to consult you. Please see me. Please don't shut me out. We'll need to identify the sender, mm. but that can wait. Now, Dr Glenister said the killer was wearing gloves. He or she would want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. They could have been cut up and disposed of down one of the loos. Mm. It's worth a look. We were lucky. In the bathroom of the suite at the far end of the corridor, we found a minute fragment of latex, fragile as a piece of human skin, caught under the rim of the lavatory bowl. A.D. carefully detached it with tweezers and placed it in an evidence bag. Then he closed it, and he and I scribbled our initials over the seal. We'll let the Socos know about this find when they arrive. And now I'd better phone Miss Gradwin's mother. Wetston told me that he'd arranged for someone from the local force to visit her. In that case, we'll get on with the group interviews. I'll see you and Benton in the library. Sir. The household was assembled and waiting with Kate and Benton when I entered the library with George Chandler Pole. Marcus Westall had distanced himself from his sister, who was seated on a chair by the window. Sharon Bateman sat bolt upright a few feet away from her. Perhaps in medical solidarity, Westall had placed himself next to Sister Flavia Holland. Helena Cresset, in one of the armchairs by the fire, sat upright, hands resting loosely on the chair arms. Beside her stood the elderly man who'd opened the gates for us, the only one on his feet. Dean and Kimberly Bostock, who ran the kitchen, were seated rigidly on the only sofa. As we entered, I saw Kimberly surreptitiously slide her hand into her husband's. Mrs. Frensham had taken a chair beside one of the windows and from time to time glanced out as if to reassure herself that there was a world, fresh and comfortingly normal, outside this air made sour by fear and tension. Commander Dalgleish, would you like to take over? Thank you. 
The idea of calling you all together is to get a group picture of exactly what happened to Rhoda Gradwin from the moment she arrived here until the discovery of her body. I shall, of course, need to speak to you separately, but I hope we'll be able to make some progress in the next half hour or so. The silence was broken by Helena Cresset. She didn't say, for God's sake, let's get on with it, but the message was clear. The first person to see Miss Gradwin, she said, was Mogworthy here, who opened the gate for her. Sister Holland, Mr Westall and I were waiting for her in the Great Hall. Mogworthy confirmed that she'd arrived on time on Thursday evening, more or less. A.D. asked him if he'd gone into the manor with her, perhaps to carry a bag up to her room. He was adamant that he hadn't entered the manor then or at any time afterwards. But he'd saved the best till last. When A.D. asked if he'd seen or heard anything unusual, he gave a smirk of sly satisfaction. Just before midnight, cycling home after his usual Friday fish and chips with a neighbour, he'd seen a car parked in the lay-by near the stones. This was news to them all, as no doubt Mogworthy had intended. I watched their faces as they glanced at each other. A moment of shared relief. A moment only. The next instant, the door was flung open and a man burst in with DC Warren behind him. My God, Marcus. How could you, you bastard? Our cousin, Robin Boyton. He's staying in the guest cottage. Robin, this is Commander Dalgleish of New Scotland Yard and his colleagues. You cold-hearted bastard. My friend, a dear close friend, is dead. Murdered. And you didn't even have the decency to tell me. (laughs) And here you all are, cozying up to the police, deciding to keep it all quiet. We mustn't upset Mr Chandler Pearl's valuable work, must we? And she's lying upstairs dead. Now calm down, You should have told me! I need to see her. I want to say goodbye. I'm afraid that isn't possible, Mr Boyton. Miss Gradwin's body has been taken to the mortuary. But I did try to tell you, Robin. I called at the cottage just before nine, but you were obviously still asleep. Anyway, who knew you were such a close friend of Rhoda Gradwin? You once told us you knew her, but not that you were close. Mr Boyton, at present, I'm interviewing only those people who were in the house from the time Miss Gradwin arrived until her body was discovered. As a friend of hers, what you have to tell us will be helpful, but not now. I must ask you to leave. Fine. As for you, Chandler Pole, nothing to say? She came here to have that scar removed. To make a new life for herself. She trusted you, you murdering bastard, and you killed her. Shall we get on, I said. And for the next 20 minutes, the recital of events on the previous day proceeded smoothly. Helena Cresset, who was in charge of running the manor, had welcomed Rhoda Gradwin on the Thursday evening and taken her directly to her room. Yesterday, Friday, Miss Cresset had worked in the office with her assistant, Candace Westhall, till seven and had then joined Sister Holland and Letitia Frensham for dinner. Marcus Westall, she'd been told, was in London, staying the night with a consultant he was hoping to work with in Africa. This morning, Saturday, Miss Cresset was already showered and dressed when Chandler Pole arrived to tell her that Rhoda Gradwin was dead. Letitia Frensham, who ran the manor's financial affairs, confirmed Helena Cresset's account of their evening together. Miss Westall? Yes, it's just as Helena says. I was working in the office with her till dinner time. When we'd eaten, I went back to the office for a few minutes to tidy up, and I left the manor shortly after ten to go back home to Stone Cottage. Go on. 
As I left, Mr. Chandler-Pole was coming down the stairs and we said goodnight. This morning, he rang to say Miss Gradwin had been found dead. Marcus and I came over at once. So you'd come back from London, Mr. Westall? Well, it seems silly staying on. Matthew Greenfield and I finished dinner quite early and then we chatted for a bit and it was still only about ten o'clock, so I decided to drive back home. I arrived around 12.30. Sister Holland. Miss Gradwin was taken to the operating theatre around mid-morning. The operation went very smoothly. As soon as it was over, the anaesthetist and the ancillary staff left the manor. She spent a few hours in recovery and was wheeled back to her room at 4.30 yesterday afternoon. She slept till about 7.30 and then she asked for a light meal. My room is at the end of the corridor and I looked in every hour to check on her until I went to bed myself at around midnight. My last visit was at 11. Miss Gradwin was asleep. Mr Chandler Pohl's account agreed with hers. The operation had gone well and he'd felt confident of an excellent result. He'd visited his patient last evening at about 10 o'clock. He'd been coming downstairs when he'd seen Candace Westall leaving the manor. Throughout the proceedings, Sharon Bateman had been sitting very still, with a look on her face which could only be described as sulky. A.D. glanced at me, and I knew he wanted me to tackle her. What about you, Sharon? What did you do yesterday evening? Me? I helped Dean and Kim in the kitchen till nine-ish. Then I went to my room and watched TV. What did you see? Can't remember. It's all rubbish anyway, innit? So when did you hear about Miss Gradwin? This morning. Sister Holland came and woke mm. me up and told me. Then she said to get down to the kitchen as soon as possible to help out. And you? Mr and Mrs Bostock, isn't it? Dean and Kimberly Bostock sat very close together and as Kimberly began, I saw him place his hand over hers. She started by saying how she'd been woken just before midnight last night by a phone call from Mrs Skeffington who'd asked for a cup of tea. Her husband had helped her carry up the tray. He never went into the patient's room, so he'd waited outside. Sister Holland broke in. Your instructions are to call me if patients ask for anything in the night. Why didn't you? Kimberly looked uncomfortable. I'm sorry, sister. I, I did ask if she wanted to see you or Mr Chandler-Pole. She said no, and I didn't want to wake you unnecessarily. So far, there'd been no surprises. Now, A.D. asked whether Dean or Kimberly Bostock had seen anything unusual while they were up. Dean said, There's one thing, sir. When we got back to the ground floor, I saw that the door to the garden wasn't bolted. I knew that Mr Chandler-Pole normally bolts that door at 11, but sometimes it's a bit later if he goes out for a walk in the garden. I thought if I bolted it, he might be out there and not able to get back in. And you noticed this on your return, said A.D., not when you were helping your wife carry up the tea. Just on our return, he said. Mr Chandler-Pole, did you bolt that door at 11 last night? I did, and I found it bolted at 6.30 this morning. Did anyone here unbolt it for any purpose? No. You can all see the importance of this. No. No one? No. Well, did anyone notice that the door was either bolted or unbolted after 11? No. Very well. And that will be enough for now. I'll be seeing you all separately, either here or in the incident room at the old police cottage. Commander Dalglish, yeah. I'd like a quick word with you, if you can spare the time. In the office, perhaps? You too, Kate. There's something I ought to say. 
You saw how embarrassed Kimberly was when asked why she hadn't woken Flavia Holland. I think it's likely she tried. The door to the suite wasn't locked, and if she or Dean partly opened it, they would have heard voices. Whose voices? Mine and Flavia's. I was with her at midnight. I see. The Bostocks may have felt awkward about telling you this, particularly with the others present. I'll confirm that with the Bostocks later. How long were you together? Until about one o'clock. There were things we needed to discuss. Some professional, some personal. I got Kate to dig out the name of Rhoda Gradwin's solicitor, then phoned to ask him to meet us at Miss Gradwin's house in Sanctuary Court the following morning. I told him to bring along a copy of her will. By 9.30 that Saturday night, the personal interviews were all completed and Kimberly Bostock had been brought to admit that she had indeed overheard Mr Chandler Pole arguing with Sister Holland in her room the previous night. Our problem is this. We have a group of seven people in the manor, any of whom could have killed Rhoda Gradwick. All knew where she was sleeping, here. And all knew that the suites beyond, here, were unoccupied and provided a possible hiding place. Mm. They all knew where the latex gloves were kept, and all could have obtained keys to the west door. Suspects. If Marcus Westall didn't return to Stone Cottage till 12.30, he's probably in the clear. But he hasn't been able to provide a witness. He could have got back earlier. Then there's Robin Boynton, sir. Um. It's doubtful he knew where Rhoda Gradwin was sleeping, but he's the only one who knew her personally. And he admits that he booked into Rose Cottage because she was here. If neither Chandler Pole nor Bostock was lying, and I don't think Bostock was, mm. then someone in the house unbolted that door after 11 o'clock, either to leave the manor or to let someone in. Mm, what about Helena Cresset? Her father once owned the manor. He was forced to sell after the Lloyd's crash and Chandler Pole snapped it up. Mm. Rhoda Gradwin wrote some pretty vicious things about Cresset at the time, and he died not long afterwards. Perhaps Cresset's daughter bore a grudge and seized her opportunity. Oh. Or perhaps Rhoda Gradwin wasn't the sole victim. Does someone bear a grudge against Chandler Pole? Did the murderer want to destroy the clinic to ruin Chandler Pole? The following morning, Sunday, Dalgleish and Kate left Stoke Chevrolet before six o'clock. They arrived in London before nine, stopped off briefly at the yard and then drove in silence through the almost empty streets. The narrow cobbled entrance under a stone arch would have been easy to miss. Number eight was on the eastern side of the paved courtyard. The dark green door had been fitted with two security locks, but we found no difficulty in selecting the right keys from Rhoda Gradwin's bunch and the door opened easily. Only here did I begin to feel that I was in mental touch with Rhoda Gradwin. It was in this room that she had lived, worked, rested, watched television, listened to music, needing no one and nothing that wasn't within these four walls. Her mahogany desk was to the left of an elegantly carved bookcase. Kate and I seated ourselves at it side by side. On the wall above us ran a shelf of box files, each neatly labelled containing copies of all her press and magazine articles. You start at that end, Kate, and I'll work my way towards you. We settled down to work. For almost an hour, neither of us spoke. This is interesting, sir. Something about Chevron Manor? No. 
An article Rhoda Gradwin wrote back in 2002. Seems to have attracted an awful amount of attention. This... This is the article. Hmm? And just look at the press cuttings that resulted. Show me. The article was intelligent, well-written and meticulously researched. It dealt with cases of plagiarism, examples of writers copying other writers' work, sometimes lifting large chunks and passing it off as their own. Some of her cases were from the distant past, others more recent. The main contemporary case she covered was undoubtedly one of blatant plagiarism. Gradwin claimed that she had herself discovered it by chance. A young female novelist, still at university, Annabel Skelton, had produced a first novel. It had been widely praised and shortlisted for a major literary prize. In the article, Gradwin showed beyond doubt that phrases, paragraphs of dialogue and powerful descriptive passages had been taken word for word from a work of fiction published in 1927 by a long-forgotten woman writer. The result of the furore that followed Rhoda Gradwin's article had been tragedy. Three days after the article appeared, the girl had killed herself. This picture, taken at Annabel Skelton's graveside. Have a look. Mm. Yes, sir. What of it? That woman, third from the left. Recognise her? Oh, just a second. I, I can't quite... Oh, here, use this. Oh, my God, sir, you're right. It's Candace Westall. Benton, what have you got, Sergeant? We've traced the car, sir. The one Mogwell he spotted on Friday night. Quick work, Sergeant. Kate, you'd better hear this. I'll put it on speakerphone. Thanks, sir. And the car owner? A bit surprising. It's a clergyman, the Reverend Michael Curtis. Lives in Droughton Cross, the vicarage of St John's Church. Mm. Full marks, Benton. Anything else? The Socos have been combing the area, sir, and they came up with a plastic bag that was hidden behind one of the Sheffield stones. Huh? And inside was a bundle of old postcards, or rather half cards. The address side is missing. They seem to have been written to a child, all sent in 1993. Have you asked anyone who they might belong to? Well, yes, sir. Sharon Bateman seemed the most likely, mm. so I got her along to the old police cottage. Well, she said at once they were hers. Said they'd been sent to her by her father after he'd left home. And she said they were the most precious things she had. And she'd buried them near the stones when she first came to the manor because she reckoned they'd be safe there. <laughs> An eventful day, Sergeant. Well done. Oh, that'll be Mr Macclefield. I'll let him in. Can you give Kate the address and postcode of that vicarage? We'll make our way there as soon as we finished here. Yes, sir. Rhoda Gradwin's solicitor was tall, fair-haired and in his early forties. He refused to sit, but used the chair to hold his briefcase, which he opened. He pulled out Rhoda Gradwin's will. Her mother was the main beneficiary. The amount will probably surprise her, he said. I asked about other legacies. £20,000 goes to a Robin Boyton, he said. I don't know his relationship with the deceased. And with that, clearly a little annoyed at having his Sunday disturbed, he hurried away to host a family lunch. Kate and I turned back to our examination of Rhoda Gradwin's study. One drawer in her desk was locked, and I found the key on the bunch we'd taken from her handbag. I pulled the drawer open. Inside there was a beige manila folder the pockets stuffed with papers. Kate pulled in a chair beside me. 
The papers were almost entirely press cuttings. At the top was an article from a Sunday newspaper dated February 1995. The headline was stark, Killed because she was too pretty. Underneath was a half-page photograph of a little girl in school uniform. Lucy Beale, aged nine, ran the caption. They stared at the story immediately beneath. In the Crown Court on Friday, Shirley Beale, 12, was found guilty of the murder of her nine-year-old sister, Lucy, because she was too pretty. She strangled Lucy with her school tie and then bashed in the face she hated until it was unrecognisable. Beale will be sent to a secure children's unit until she is 17, when she will be transferred to a young offender's institution. I turned over the cutting. Beneath it... Clipped to a plain sheet of paper was a photograph. An older girl in the same school uniform. I pushed it across to Kate. It was a face we both knew. Sharon Bateman. I wonder how Gradwin managed to make the connection. Huh. It's odd the press were even able to publish the names. Reporting restrictions must have been lifted for some reason. Death had occurred at about 3.30 on a Saturday afternoon when the grandmother had gone to a local hall to play bingo. It was not unusual for the children to be left alone. The murder had been discovered when she returned home at 6 o'clock. Lucy's body was on the floor of the kitchen. Shirley was upstairs, asleep in bed. She'd made no attempt to wash her sister's blood from her hands and arms. The weapon, used to batter Lucy's face to a pulp, was an old flat iron which was used as a doorstop. When asked, Shirley at once admitted killing her sister. She showed no emotion. I need to have Sharon watched. Would you continue looking through these files? I'll do my phoning from downstairs. Mr Boyton. Why are you here at Chevrolet Manor? Because Miss Gradwin asked me to come. But that isn't quite accurate, is it, Mr Boyton? Mr Chandler Pole was quite clear that Miss Gradwin had said she wanted no visitors. She may have changed her mind. Or perhaps she didn't want anyone to see her before the bandages were removed. I don't know. I only know she asked me to come. But you sent her a text. We found it on her mobile. What did you say? Something very important has cropped up. I need to consult with you. Please see me. Please don't shut me out. What was this important matter, Mr Boyton? It, it wasn't really important. I tried to make it sound as if it was. It was about money. I run an advisory company with my partner. We teach the socially insecure how to smarten up their act. It's a real market opportunity, and do the clients pay? But we were running the show from Jeremy's house and the neighbours were getting a bit sniffy. We needed another base and a suitable property had come on the market. It would have been a really good investment for Rhoda and I hoped she'd help. With the scar gone and a new life before her, she might have been interested. And your partner, Jeremy... Coxon. Mr Coxon can confirm this? Yes, he could, but I don't see why you should ask him. I didn't tell him I was going to approach Rhoda. None of this is your business. We're investigating a murder, Mr Boyton. Everything is our business. AD spoke little on the journey north. This didn't bother me at all. Journeying with him in companionable silence has always been a special pleasure. 
Though, I thought, wryly, Piers and I could never stop talking to each other. The sat-nav eventually brought us to St John's Church, a huge, grimed Victorian building with a dominant spire on the corner of the street we were seeking. Number two was the largest house, with a garage to the left and a small front lawn. The Reverend Michael Curtis was wearing a cassock with what looked like an old college scarf around his neck. His kindly eyes looked a little puzzled, but completely unworried. I said, I want to ask you about your car. It was seen parked late on Friday night, close to the scene of a serious crime. I'm hoping that whoever was driving might have seen something that would help our inquiries. Were you in Dorset on Friday night? Dorset? No, I was here with the parochial church council. I'd lent the car to a friend. He's the head of our local comprehensive, Droughton Cross, Stephen Collinsby. You might catch him now at the school. He usually goes in on Sunday afternoons to prepare for the week ahead. A few minutes later, we arrived at a Victorian building of patterned brick, standing back in a large asphalt playground surrounded by tall railings. The front door was open to our ring so quickly that I suspected the Reverend Curtis had phoned his friend. Stephen Collinsby, almost as tall as AD, was wearing a pair of old trousers and a jumper with patches of leather on the elbows. He led us through the sparsely furnished entrance hall and down the terrazzo-floored corridor and stood aside to let us enter a room that was a mixture of conference room, study and sitting room. He pulled out two chairs at the table. Shall we sit here? Thank you. Thank you. We're making inquiries into the suspicious death of a woman in Stoke Chevrolet in Dorset. A Ford Focus with a number plate 341 UDG was seen parked close to the house around 11.30 on the night she died, last Friday. We're told you borrowed the car on that date. Were you driving? And were you there? Yes, I was there. Under what circumstances, Mr Collinsby? I want to make a statement. I want to explain everything to you. I know it will all have to be official later, but I want to tell you now in my own words. Perhaps that would be best. Well, when I gained a place at London University for a one-year teacher training course, I needed somewhere to live. A friend of mine had rented a room out in Essex. When visiting him, I saw an ad in a shop window offering a room suitable for a student. So I rang and went to the house. It was occupied by a docker, Stanley Beale, his wife and their two daughters, Shirley, who was 11, and her younger sister Lucy, aged eight. You rented the room, I take it? I did, but the atmosphere in that house was awful. They had their maternal grandmother living with them and the husband and wife were on shouting terms. To cut a long story short, within a week of my arrival, after a quarrel of house-shaking ferocity, Beale walked out. I could have done the same, but what kept me there was the younger daughter, Lucy. Lucy, aged eight. How can I describe her to you? She was an enchanting child. Graceful, gentle, with a fine intelligence. Sometimes when I was studying in my room, Lucy would join me and read while I was working. Then we would talk. Some weekends I'd ask her mother if I could take her up to London to a museum or gallery. Her mother was glad to have her out of the way, particularly when she was bringing her men back home. Did you...? I, I know 
what you're going to ask, and no, this was not a sexual relationship, not in any sense. It was love, pure and simple. <laughs> Who's going to believe me? Shirley also lived in the house, a difficult, morose child. I should have realised that she was unhappy. Once, when I was taking Lucy to see Westminster Abbey, I did ask if she'd like to come, but she refused. What happened next? After I qualified, I decided to take a year off and travel. At first, I sent postcards to Lucy, sometimes two a week. It's probable Lucy never received them. Hmm? We think they were intercepted by Shirley. They've been found, cut in half and buried beside one of the Chevrolet stones. My God. I learned of Lucy's murder when I was in Sri Lanka. I was sick with the horror of it. And of course I grieved for the child I loved. But I now had a wife and child of my own, so I never told anyone of my connection to the family. After all, I felt absolutely no responsibility for her death. I had none. So tell us, when exactly did Shirley Beale get in touch with you? Private Patient by P.D. James, Dalgleish was played by Richard Derrington, Kate Miskin by Deborah McAndrew, Chandler Pole by Jonathan Keeble, Rhoda Gradwin by Christine Kavanagh, Marcus Westall by Adrian Grove, and Candice Westall by Alison Pettit. Robin Boyton was played by Bertie Carville, Sharon Bateman by Charlotte Worthing, Flavia Holland by Vinita Rishi, Dr. Glenister by Charlotte Westorham, Collinsby by Andy Hockley, Mrs. Skeffington by Kate Layden, Benton by John Deep Moore, Weston by Mark Carey, and Harkness by Robert Lister. The narrator was Carolyn Pickles. It was dramatised by Neville Teller and directed in Birmingham by Peter Leslie Ward. The Private Patient continues in Woman's Hour on Monday with an omnibus edition next Friday evening. Well, The World Tonight is next with Robin Lustig in New York and Roger Hearing in London. Before that, we'll have a quick look at tomorrow's weather forecast. It'll be wet and breezy for much of England, Wales and Northern Ireland, but the damp weather will clear western parts around midday to give brighter intervals and scattered showers. The rain will continue to move eastwards, turning more showery as it goes, before finally clearing in the evening. It'll be a largely cloudy and showery day for Scotland, with the showers merging into longer spells of rain across the northwest. Looking ahead to Sunday and Monday, it'll be drier and brighter in most parts, although showers will affect northeastern Scotland. On FM, on Longwave, on digital and online. This is BBC Radio 4. This has been a Nostalgic Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.